Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's the first week of July 1901, and the British are about to break the code, both the Boers and the Dutch have been using, which has meant London's military planning at times has been beset by guesswork, but that's about to change. Not that things have gone too badly in recent months for the British. The Boers have begun to surrender in larger numbers, as it becomes clear that continued fighting was almost suicidal. There was only honour now, and when your women and children begin dying in concentration camps because you want to fight to the death, surrendering and ensuring your bloodline isn't such a crazy idea at all. Not that Generals Jan Smuts and Louis Botha from the Transvaal were for giving up just yet. It was really clear, however, that the British were not going to stop fighting, although the war had now dragged on for 21 months. What the Boers did not know was that their arch-enemy in South Africa, the British Commander-in-Chief Lord Kitchener, had received a bit of a shock from the War Office in the form of a telegram. It outlined that the government was planning to trim his force of 250,000 men by 110,000 in order to save money. London was borrowing heavily to pay for the Boer War and Kitchener was told in the telegram that he had until the end of winter in the Southern Hemisphere to ensure that Boerter and Smuts and the hardliners Generals De La Rey and De Vette were defeated. Last week we heard how Kitchener had fumed through early July, sending short responses in reply to the long telegram, which were hardly a tacit agreement. These were comments about recent successes, and he avoided answering properly as he bought himself time. So the reply Kitchener eventually sent was masterful, as he neither resigned nor turned the war office down flat. Instead, he sent a few telegrams where he mused out aloud about the process of trimming his force without actually doing it or even agreeing to do so. A phased reduction appeared reasonable, he said, but not when he would begin. The monthly totals of Boers killed, wounded or captured was hardly enough to convince the war office that he was winning in this bitter part of the campaign. 2,585 Boers captured in May, 2,277 in June and there would be 1,820 in July. It was at this time that the British learned just how bitter the end was likely to be with the news that they had broken the Boer code. They didn't make that news public, of course. It was a double intelligence coup that enabled the British to seize part of the initiative back from the Boers, but it was a rather hollow tactical advantage. They had hoped that the Boers were now ready to lay down arms and that there were only a handful willing to fight on. They had not fully realised that the Free State Government under President Steyn was totally committed to continuing the conflict as long as it took. As we've heard, General Botha was allowed by Lord Kitchener from the Transvaal to send a coded message to President Kruger, who is now exiled in the Netherlands. The cables were exchanged by way of the Dutch Consul General in the Transvaal. This had happened earlier in April, where the British hopes had been raised with the Transvaal Generals appearing to be ascendant during the Boer internal discussions, only for the Free Staters to throw a spanner in the peaceworks. So it was that Lord Kitchener received a second devil-may-care answer to the query about surrender in June, with the Boers saying, no peace without full independence. But in mid-July, British intelligence at the war office broke the code used in the cables to Kruger. 
As with the now famous Second World War Enigma code-breaking story, the British had achieved a major coup with newfound knowledge and they would use this to try and prize open the relationship between Smuts and Boerter on one hand and De La Rey and De Vette on the other. The cipher turned out to be in French, based on dictionaries, and was jointly cracked by a cryptographer in Ireland and the assistant librarian at the War Office Intelligence Command. The War Office was surprised by how firm President Steyn was in the belief that his men would fight to the bitter end. They also confirmed part of the British strategy was correct in trying to separate the Transvaal and the Free State, and how Boerter and Smuts were not as confident as Steyn. As the codebreakers were breaking the Boer cipher, probably in their shirt sleeves and late-night oil lamps, back in South Africa, the man who was the most determined to fight on was about to escape almost certain capture. Had he fallen into British hands now, it would have dealt the Boers a possible fatal blow, and it has been said by their own leaders, including Christian de Vett, that the war may have ended then. It was going to be President Steyn's narrow escape that in a way doomed thousands more women and children in the concentration camps to death. General Christian de Vett had been riding with Steyn, and for a few days they had parted company when de Vett had tracked down a lager of women which the British had captured. We heard how this had ended disastrously for de Vett, and Steyn and a few men had ridden away so that the hardline president would not be surrounded by the British. Little did these men know how close he was about to come to capture once more. De Vett and Steyn had reconnected in early July and were trying to reach the Transvaal by swinging around to the south initially, De Vett's old trick of making the British think he was heading back to the Cape, then swinging southeasterly where they reached the small town of Freda in the Free State. There, the local Boer commandant, Mani Boerter, gave De Vett a few spare men who knew that part of the country well. They were to act as guides in order to move across the railway line. The British had pickets and sentries and blockhouses every few miles or so and was extremely difficult to cross during the night, virtually impossible during the day. We headed to the north of Foxerus and on the second evening, after he had left Freda, we struck the railway line at the spot which was guarded by an outpost, writes De Vett. They opened fire on us at once. So De Vett and General Delaray rejoined his commander, then decided to retreat a short distance and sweep back towards the railway line a few miles further down the track. This worked. They managed to cross unseen. But the first of our men had hardly got 70 paces from the railway line when a fearful explosion of dynamite took place, not 30 paces from the spot we had crossed. They had set off a booby trap laid by the British, but had been moving so fast that the massive explosion missed all the men on the commando, and thus explained why there were no guards at that point on the line. At all events, he writes laconically, we escaped with only a fright. De Vette, De La Rey, Smuts and Boerter, along with other Boer leaders, met four days later and agreed to keep fighting. They were buoyed by the good news from General Kemp, who had surprised 400 Australians in the eastern Transvaal, guarding a large convoy of material. These days, the commandos could not move freely and required guides to take them back and forth in the countryside because of the English drives and blockhouses. De Vett used Captain Alberts from the Stanerton area south of Johannesburg, who travelled with the Free State commander right to the Free State border. As they reached the Vaal River, General De La Rey took leave of the unit and rode off with his men towards Vereniging. He was planning to cut across the Transvaal westwards once more. De Vett crossed the Vaal River without incident, and then President Steyn also parted company with the general. The president was on his way to Reitz via Frankfurt, almost directly due south. 
This is where the Free State President almost met his match. The British were seizing towns and garrisoning some, others they would search and seize material and order the women and children and black workers into trains and wagons and send these to the burgeoning concentration camps. Then they would leave. The Boers had learned to clear out of town, then return once the British had left, if they hadn't left their own garrison or guards. But the British were alert to this ruse now. After all, the cat-and-mouse game had been going on for six months since the guerrilla phase of the war began. Lord Kitchener had ordered another full-scale drive through the Free State, and thousands of British troops were marching back and forth, columns that were conducting a scorched-earth policy, as I've explained. President Steyn was part of a commando that had hidden from the British as they took the town of Rates. Then he and the Boers and his bodyguard moved back into the settlement after the car keys had left on the 10th of July 1901. Broadwood, the cavalry officer who we've already met and been involved in a number of defeats of the Boers in battles and skirmishes, was not going to be tricked again. He and 400 men rode back into the town in the middle of the night, catching President Steyn's bodyguard and around 100 Boers fast asleep in the dwellings. They burst into rates, galloping through in seconds. Broadwood captured the entire Free State Government staff, including the commander of the bodyguard. This is where the story turns once more, as many have in this war. A sergeant of the 7th Dragoon Guards saw a figure on a horse galloping down the street with a nightcap on and coatless and using a halter as a bridle. It was a Boer soldier and the sergeant raced after him firing as he went, but the Boer was riding a fresh pony and the sergeant had been riding all night. His horse was spent and the man disappeared into the gloom. President Steyn had been woken up by his black cook who warned him that the British were all over town and had it not been for this heads-up, Stain would have been captured, along with his entire government. But he had left all his documents and £11,500 in cash, which was a major blow to the Free Staters' war plans. But lining up after the capture were significant foes of the British, including Generals A.P. Cronier and J.B. Vessels. The latter had commanded the Boer force, which had surrounded Kimberley during the siege, and the press had made much of his capture. Christian de Vett was shaken by the reports, he heard, as he sat on a farm not far away. My joy at finding that the president was safe was only equaled by my grief at the loss of such old friends as J.P. Cronier, member of the Executive Council, General J.B. Vessels, T. Brain, Secretary to the Government, Commandant Dowell, Rocco de Villiers, Secretary to the Executive Council, Gordon Fraser, Private Secretary to the President, Mac Hardy, Assistant Secretary, Peter Stein, brother to the President, and my other friends in the bodyguard. These men were lost to the struggle, now made prisoner and marched off to spend their time in exile. Once again, however, De Vett believes that there was Boer treachery involved, although it's likely Broadwood was just using common sense. When the English took the government and President Stein's bodyguard prisoners, they had had a free state burger. He writes in his book, Three Years' War. The positions, though, were filled quickly by other Boers, while Steyn decided to reduce the size of his bodyguard by more than half to 30 men and appointed Captain Niekerk as their commander. On the British side, the successful raid back into the small town of Reitz resonated for other reasons. When journalists discovered that the man in the nightcap, riding out of town, fleeing was President Steyn himself, 
there was an outpouring of anger. As with these things, an investigative journalist discovered that the British had been using oil in their breech-loading Lee Metford rifles that was allegedly of poor quality. That created editorials and further outpourings of vituperation directed at the military, but clearly it was just the jingoistic press at its most extreme. Stain had escaped because of an alert cook who tipped him off, and also because his horse was fresh and fast. No amount of good oil would have changed that moment because the sergeant did actually fire at the Boer president. He just missed. In New South Wales, Australia, at about this time, some quite interesting coverage of events in South Africa had begun to emerge. I just found this from the Goldborn Evening Penny Post in New South Wales, published on July 9th, 1901, where they heard that British intelligence had been greatly advanced through the capture of documents from the Boers. For example, documents indicated that the Boers had been led to believe that France was ready to land troops in Africa. This false information was circulated amongst the Boers officially and helped increase morale. It was really propaganda. The Sydney Stock and Station Journal, printed in New South Wales, July 2nd, 1901, had an interesting update from the field, where Major General Rawlinson, who had commanded the South African Field Force, visited the Michalisburg mountain range, We've already heard of the many battles, skirmishes and incidents around these steep mountains to the west of Pretoria. The journal reports that Major General Rawlinson found the Boers ploughing and sowing their land in the belief that the war had ended in their favour. The Boers were arrested. The war drags on as of yore and the pro-Boers in England are allowed to live while our soldiers are getting killed. Another update from the Clarence River Advocate. New South Wales in mid-July 1901. The output of the Rand Goldfields for the year which has elapsed since the resumption of milling amounts to 613,873 ounces, it says matter-of-factly. That production was still a tiny fraction of what was required, but the mines were starting to produce ore and these profits were finding their way into the treasury in London. It wasn't enough to offset borrowing but these were positive times for the British government. The propaganda war between these two worlds had evolved during the Anglo-Boer War. I've already covered in earlier podcasts how this was a crucial conflict in many ways because of the trial run of technologies that would feature in two more terrible wars. For example, the use of handheld cameras, which were cheap enough for soldiers to carry, had emerged in the Anglo-Boer War, and the reading of newspapers, which was also in its ascendancy. Both the British and Boers worked hard inside South Africa and globally to present a version of reality that was their own. Independent coverage of events had virtually ceased. Journalists from around the world had their pet projects linked to their nation states. French and German reporters were naturally negative about the British, while Australian and Canadian reporters were mostly supportive of the war against the Boers. The Americans, however, were a different kettle of fish. Because they'd fought their own war of independence against the English, reporting in the USA tended to be more even-handed about events in South Africa. This is in sharp distinction, it must be said, to coverage today inside America about events inside its own nation. This is fascinating, but not for our podcast. I mention this because at the turn of the 19th century, American reporters were imbued with an outwardly-looking ability that glows in their newspaper coverage of the time. The factual balance and their telling of the story from various sides was an intellectual antidote 
to some of the European coverage, where the French reporters sneered at anything that was British and misreported Boer events for their own internal national interest. There is a harsh edge to this type of information sharing and propaganda during the wartime. Eventually, the realities catch up to you. British journalists were turning a blind eye to the reports of the concentration camps, where hundreds of women and children, black and white, were beginning to die. Even their own officials were being pressed to describe things that were taking place in a benign way instead of accurately. Take the case of Dr. Kendall Franks, for example. He was tasked by the British commander in Pretoria, General Maxwell, to head off to Irene concentration camp to assess the conditions. That's the camp where Johanna van Barmere was working as a nurse and keeping a diary, as we've heard. And she was describing directly about just how many people were dying. This was not propaganda. It was not for public interest. It was not being read by anyone. She was reporting to herself for posterity about a real problem. But Dr. Franks, who ended up touring the camp on the 10th and 11th of July 1901, reported to General Maxwell that the Boers were, in his words, naturally unhygienic, which was another of the ethnic slurs endured by these people. It's similar, ironically, to the National Party government of apartheid, referring to blacks as different based on their ethnicity. Therefore, they deserve to be separated and put into special homelands where they could practice their differences, but equally. It's a cruel irony indeed that the people who suffered from British imperial self-righteousness and scorn about being backward would enforce the very same logic on black South Africans with the very same historical truths that eventually emerged. So, Dr. Franks alluded to the dirtiness of the people instead of going to the root of the problem, as Johanna van Warmer writes angrily. Dr. Franks spent a paltry five hours in Irene camp, then reported back to General Maxwell that basically the Boers were dying because they were people prone to being dirty. This false narrative backfired historically. Those involved in generating falsehoods tend to die before the full lie is exposed. And when this happens, they're not around to defend their names. Still, there was no surrender by the armed forces and the commandos. And in fact, Jan Smuts and Christian de Wett, along with other Boer leaders, were planning a major invasion of the Cape Colony. While Generals Kritzinger and Herzog had already been causing mayhem in the Cape, no large-scale invasion had yet taken place. But that was going to change. And also, waiting for his moment to launch his own personal attack, was our narrator, Denise Reitz. The Reitz family had given their name to the town in which President Stein was almost captured, and Denise was now riding with around a dozen men, the Dirty Dozen, as Martin Bossenbrook calls them, and planning his own personal quixotic mission impossible. How these two plans, the one by a future commander of the British forces during the World War II and the other by a teenager bent on securing his people's honour would intersect is the topic of our podcasts later this month. What a story it is. Really, I believe real life is far more interesting than any fiction because what I'm going to tell you, you literally can't dream up. So until next week, please rate the podcast on iTunes and you can send me a message on Twitter at Des Latham, or by email through our website, abwarpodcast.com. Goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud transval, daar waar my sari woon.
Daar onder een dimmel is bij de groen door een boom. Daar woont mijn Sarie Marie. Daar onder een dimmel is bij de groen door een boom.